Hi, I'm Michael Hartman. I'm Naomi Liu. And I'm Mike Rizzo. And this is OpsCast. A podcast for marketing ops pros. And RevOps pros. Created by the MoPros, the number one community for marketing operations professionals. Tune in to each episode as we chat with real professionals to help elevate you in your marketing operations career. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of OpsCast brought to you by MarketingOps.com, powered by the MoPros. I'm your host, Michael Hartman, joined today by one co-host. Today, I've got Mike Rizzo by my side. So today, today is George Shing, co-founder and CEO of Supergrain, a customer engagement platform. So prior to founding Supergrain, George held multiple roles at Lyft, including director, head of decision science products, and was a data scientist at Indiegogo. Before that, he was a fixed income analyst with Morgan Stanley, uh, which I find fascinating, the combination of things here. George, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, guys. Uh, Super glad to be here and excited to chat marketing automation and marketing ops. Awesome. Yeah, no, I know we talked a little bit ago. I was actually looking back. It was we're now late November recording this. It was late August, I think. So it's been a while since we chatted. So I'm sure there's been even more movement what you're doing. But before we get into sort of the novel way that Supergreen is approaching uh, marketing automation, and I think it goes beyond that, we'll get that in a little bit. Like, Can you first maybe share a little more about you know, your career and your journey and how it led to starting Supergrain as a beginning point? Let's start from there. Yeah. As you mentioned, uh, thanks for that intro, by the way. I started my career actually in finance, which is like totally different on a fixed income trading floor working at a bank in Hong Kong. So literally the other side of the world. Um, And I think the only common thread was that there was something numeric and something analytical about the work I was doing. Other than that, I hated working in finance. So after about a year, I moved over, uh, you know, came back to the States, wanted to be in the Bay Area. I'm originally from the East Coast, super cold winters, didn't want to be in New Jersey. So came out here. Uh, joined a startup called Indiegogo, and the only role that I was qualified to do was something uh, that at the time was uh, they called data analytics, which I wasn't familiar with, but it turned out to be something that uh, was useful for the business. And uh, from there, the rest of my career has been in data and analytics. So spent a couple of years at Indiegogo. Um, and then uh, while I was in San Francisco, I started using uh, this ride-sharing service called Lyft, um, ended up joining them as the, the first data hire there. And then, you know, uh, it just kind of, as the company grew, uh, I started working on data science, business intelligence, data engineering, and built out a, a number of teams there. Um, and it was really at Lyft where I saw a lot of the interactions between data and a lot of the stakeholders, um, marketing teams, growth teams, and a lot of the challenges that were involved. So a lot of my job was just sitting at the intersection of data, decision-making, figuring out how to get the right data sets, the right data points to the right people in order to make decisions. And whether that was um, marketing decision-makers, whether that was running email campaigns, or whether that was running automations. And as you can imagine, at Lyft, we had a number of very, very complex um, automations for everything uh, from driver incentives to uh, driver onboarding to new users and coupons and things like this. So that's when I really gained an appreciation for the role of data um, and, and marketing and, and marketing technology. Uh, that was kind of my first introduction to that. 
So I've interested in a couple, couple of follow-ups, if you don't mind, indulge me here. So the, 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 the work in finance. So if for our listeners, you may not be as familiar with George, that I'm, I'm a big advocate that everybody should at least learn the basics of finance. So I'm, it's interesting that you say you were in finance, but just like, it, it's still applied to what you do, you're doing now, but not as directly. Do you, do you still find that your, your education, your knowledge of finance is still valuable at this point? Yeah, I, I think for sure. I, I think if nothing else, I became pretty proficient at Excel uh, when I was working there. And I feel like that is almost the foundation for any kind of analytical number-based job is you, you start with a spreadsheet and you figure out how models work. And and I think a lot of the foundational principles, you know, now that people talk about SQL and data warehouses and how you slice and dice numbers and build BI dashboards, uh, there's a lot of parallels between that and just looking at a spreadsheet at the end of the day. Yeah. And so I think that gave us gave me a lot of foundations. And again, I think it's probably for that reason that they hired me at Indiegogo because I wasn't qualified to do anything else. Yeah. You were, you're sort of an Excel jockey, right? Yeah. 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 And so it's interesting because I, um, although I wasn't the one doing a lot of the modeling, I worked at a, uh, a consulting company, second job out of my, in my career that did a lot of work with real estate companies. So there was a lot of, um, cash flow modeling that went into that for, different kinds of real estate, you know, portfolios and stuff like that. And I, so I was around it enough that I learned that that's how I learned. And by the way, they all hated Excel because they were so good at Lotus one, two, three, that that's how it dates me. You probably yeah. don't even, never even heard of it. Right. Cause you could all do it with keystrokes. So Mike's over there laughing at me. <laughs> I know. Like I totally know the tool, but I never used it. Um, but like yeah, I got my here. foray into tech and I, I always heard about it and never really saw it. So. So I think at one point in early versions of Excel, they like to try to get people to adopt it. I think they kept like there was a way you could turn on like how to use some of the Lotus like control keystrokes. Right? You could do slash whatever. Right? So that way you didn't have to take your hand off the keyboard and use the mouse. Right? It was inefficient. Anyway, I'm it's saying funny. there's stuff, like my there's biggest, like a whole I mean, email product around <laughs> this idea of keystroke uh, managing your inbox now too. So it's come right. full circle. Yeah. Well, my, my biggest uh, transition when I was moved into tech was uh, moving from a from a Windows machine to Mac and not knowing my Excel shortcuts and not having the right hotkeys. So I I'm using a Mac right now and I love the Mac. Though I always tell you the one thing I do not like about it is that I can't use the shortcuts in Excel that I was so used to. Yeah. Yeah. That's so totally. funny. It's, it, it's funny. it is a hard, it, I have to agree. It's a hard transition to make. Like my first role in a tech job, like tech SaaS company, I was issued a, you know, standard issue, leased Mac book pro or whatever. And I was like, <laughs> I was a gamer, man. I built my own computers. Right. So I was a PC guy like for sure. All the way I was looking at this thing. Like, what do I do with this? <laughs> like it's a whole new language. And then as a marketer, I, be, I began to value it greatly. Um, just some of the stuff. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. The Excel side of things. Oh, yeah. All right. So let me get us back on track. So George, I'm sorry. I went a little bit sideways there, but um, okay. So that experience with Indiegogo and Lyft um, said you exposed you to data and the importance of the data for marketing. Go, I'll call it go to market or, or revenue functions. But so is what was the, was that 
the catalyst for you going, Hey, there's an opportunity to start super grain. Is that kind of where it's that was that the seed that where it started from? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, the, the general theme that I've been passionate about. And I think that, you know, really I cultivated while I was at Lyft was just kind of this desire to um, help people make better decisions with data. And that was the, that was maybe the seed that wanted me to start something. I, I think I wanted to do something entrepreneurial for a long time. When I left Lyft, it was right before the pandemic. And then shortly during the pandemic, I spent a lot of time just thinking about what I was going to do next, took some time off. And then with this idea of how do I um, enable people within organizations to make better decisions with data and do what I was doing at Lyft, but helping other companies do that as well. Um, eventually, I would say through a number of iterations, we ended up with Supergrain and um, you know the direction that we're building in now. Got it. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what you're doing, and I think this is this was really fascinating. I know when Mike introduced us, so uh, it, and I may get this wrong a little bit, but you you just, just super range described as a warehouse native warehouse native solution for marketing and marketing ops, and, and, and maybe even goes beyond that customer experience. So, for our listeners, can you define what you mean by warehouse native solution? And maybe even give some examples <clears throat> of of what kind of scenarios that would mean, or you know, use cases, or maybe even compare. Like today, you would use something that's not warehouse native, and we don't have to pick any specific, say, marketing automation platform, but because I think they're all fairly similar, um, versus what you how you solve the kind of the challenges. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so Supergrain uh, is a is a warehouse native. We're also a B2B focused marketing automation platform. And what we really mean by warehouse native is that we, uh, there, there's a couple of things. One, we integrate directly with cloud data warehouses like Snowflake and BigQuery. Um, I, I think the second principle is that uh, we're using cloud data warehouses as the source of truth for customer data. Uh, which is, I think, one of the big differences uh, versus traditional uh, platforms, which ingest all the customer data themselves and presume to be the source of truth for customer data. And, and this includes CDPs and, and um, you know, traditional marketing automation solutions and a number of other customer engagement tools out there. Um, but the key, uh, you know, so, so that's the key thing. We integrate directly with uh the customer's cloud data warehouse. And to the extent that we can, we run compute and run a lot of the operations directly on top of their infrastructure. Um, maybe to talk about why we, we took this approach, I think with a big trend that we saw, and I started to see this while I was at Lyft as well, is that companies are, are really struggling to keep data across different platforms in sync. So they have customer data in a number of different places. It might be their CRM. It might be a cloud data warehouse. It might be a customer engagement tool, a, a CS um, platform. And at the end of the day, it's all the same data, but different teams are making changes and updates to uh, you know, the same data in different systems. And you have this complex web of pipelines to make sure that they stay in sync. Um, one of the things that we start seeing about how companies are solving this problem is centralizing all their customer data in a cloud data warehouse like Snowflake or BigQuery 
And that becomes the source of truth that powers all their downstream systems of engagement with customers. And when we started to see that, we thought, hey, naturally, instead of building yet another data platform that ingests customer data, why don't we just sit on top of the data platform that customers are already uh, converging around, which is their own cloud data warehouse. I have so many thoughts on this. <laughs> like I, I was like, I've got a couple of follow-up questions too, Mike, but you go. Um, you know, George, when you and I connected, for our listeners, like, we don't normally have founders come on and talk about products, right? Like as, as a sort of a rule for the show, that's something, something that we just, we don't generally do. But the reason we wanted to talk to George was specifically on this show was because this concept of warehouse native is super new. Like I, I would argue you're like at sort of the cutting edge of like this new set of adoption that's coming down the pike. And at least for me, when the first time I heard it, it was definitely an aha moment, right? When I suddenly thought about, wow, if there's an organization that's mature enough to try to actually centralize their operations on a on Snowflake or BigQuery and a data warehouse scenario, I have not worked for any organization that has done that yet. <laughs> However, for those that are doing this, um, gosh, it does make a lot of sense uh, to potentially have these apps that just sit right on top of that um, and allow you to interact with that data in a way that is effectively it's wholly owned, right? Like, you know, it, to some degree, my take on this in Georgia, I'd love to hear your thoughts. To some degree, Salesforce owns your data. HubSpot owns your data. Right. Like at the end of the day, they're sitting in their infrastructure, their servers like, yes, you own it. You own the rights to it. You can extract yeah. it and move it to somewhere else if you'd like. Uh, but it's certainly not your own servers or anything like that. Um, you don't. you're not building around your own sort of infrastructure. You're 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 subscribing to software as a service. Um, and and what I'm seeing in the market is at least with stuff like this is this sort of shift back to. Well, we actually, especially with privacy and compliance laws and all these things coming together, we actually need to own our data more holistically on our own servers that, you know, maybe have other software tools that help enable our interactions with our data sets uh, and potentially the enterprise that needs to now activate that data and needs tools like a super grain or something like that to sort of get back into the flow of, you know, doing a go-to-market motion. Is that sort of like in my Am I off? Like, is this like, is there a ton of companies doing this and I'm just not working at any of them? And like, am I speaking around in circles or? <laughs> no, 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 you're, you're totally right. And I, and I think you, you pointed out some of a couple of the key reasons that I think that the warehouse native approach um, is compelling to a number of people that we talk to, which is, uh, pri you know, privacy and data, data ownership, right? So with a warehouse native approach, instead of moving your data into um, another third party uh, and copying it there every single time you need to use it for email automation or, or CRM purposes, you just kind of, it just sits on your own cloud, your own data cloud. And then you can imagine the same way that you have an iPhone and you can install applications that run on your iPhone. You can essentially have data applications that run on top of the data that you already own. Um, it's like if you have your iPhone and you have all your customer data there, instead of figuring out a way to 
plug in a USB stick or something like that and transfer it to another device, um, you just have uh, all these applications that use the same underlying data, and they can also share data uh, and communicate with other apps that are also installed on your phone. Um, that's maybe kind of the analogy, um, and that's certainly a few years probably down the road before we get there. But that's certainly the vision that um, I think a lot of this uh, can potentially get to um, in a few years once the technology is ready, once the ecosystem matures. And it makes a lot of sense for the end users because you don't have to pay the cost of moving data back and forth. You don't have to worry about data syncing issues or inconsistency between different applications and different platforms. Um, and at the end of the day, you have a single source of truth uh, that um, becomes a lot easier for uh, activating and doing personalization and segmentation, which you know, I think a, a lot of folks probably listening to this would agree. One of the hardest parts of um, you know, using product data and other data that lives inside of uh, a cloud data warehouse for messaging purposes is actually getting the data into those platforms. So it also solves that problem. Yeah. So um, I want to make sure I understood this right. So it sounds like, is there? did I hear correctly, there's a sort of a supposition for this uh, warehouse native concept that the, the, the organizations that are going to be successful already either have or are in process of building, we'll keep it to customer, a, a customer data warehouse. Is that? Did I, did I I'm understanding that right? Yeah, I I would see I would say that one of the things that we observe is that once companies get to a certain stage, certainly the startups that we work with, um, when they get to Series A or Series B, it becomes part of the natural evolution of how they think about their data maturity. So um, around that time, they start to invest in uh, many different systems. They start realizing the pain of uh, having data in a bunch of different places and there's a solution out of the box where now they will um, invest in a data warehouse, start centralizing all that information there, also start building out data capabilities to manage the data that lives inside of that warehouse, and then start thinking about how to leverage that single source of truth in downstream places. Um, and so that evolution happens a little bit earlier for some companies, a little bit later for other companies, but as a whole, um, certainly because it's now easier than ever before to set up a data warehouse. It's happening, um, I would say, earlier than than uh, it was as an industry uh, even a couple of years ago. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, my, my head went straight to, like, I've, the idea of simply defining terminology that everyone agreed to is what is a customer, right? seems like it should be an easy thing to define, but it's usually like, I've only been at one place that's even come close to doing it. Mm. Um, so, do, I mean, do you run into those challenges where these companies um, are still struggling with the, the taxonomy, so to speak of what they're doing in terms of that data? So they have the, they have this, like, Hey, this need to do, they realize it to, to scale or whatever to grow the way they need to, they need to be more deliberate and conscious about how they manage customer data have they gone through are they typically still going through that process of def definitions or are they usually beyond that at that point yeah i i would say it's a spectrum you know as with most things are um typically we see that 
the first use case is that there's a particular piece of product data or some product metric that is really important to the business that they want to use in some type of email campaign or for some type of onboarding flow. So to, to make this really concrete, um, let's say they, you know, a customer wants to send um, and kind of like a upsell message to the admins of um, one of their customers every single time there's five uh, new users on that account, right? Uh, when, when that account reaches five total users. Well, that calculation, like the number of active users on that account is a calculation that is done inside of the cloud data warehouse. So one of the first things that we'll see is they'll throw all the data that they need into their cloud data warehouse in order to calculate that metric. And then the next step is getting that metric into, you know, the system of engagement for doing marketing automation to support that onboarding flow that they want to um, want to do. And, you know, I, I think like over time, they will expand and calculate more metrics. They will build more of like a cohesive taxonomy around all of this. But it really just starts with that first use case and then expands, expands from there. Hey everyone, it's Mike Rizzo here, and I'm interrupting your episode to bring you a brief message about, you might have guessed it, Mopsapalooza 2024, our second annual conference held in the vibrant city of Anaheim, California. We're hosting this hybrid event from the 5th of November through the 8th, and we would love for you to join us in person in Anaheim. But if you can't, please join us via live stream, courtesy of our sponsor, Excelevents. We're excited to offer an opportunity for professionals just like you to connect, learn, and grow among the best in the industry. Our event promises to be a highlight of the year, offering invaluable professional development experiences, live workshops, and of course, networking with your peers. Don't miss out on this incredible gathering right next to Disneyland in Southern California. Tickets are going fast. We will cap registration at 700 attendees. Secure your pass by visiting marketingops.com today. And we're looking forward to welcoming you to what is guaranteed to be an unforgettable event. It might just be the best event you've ever attended. But don't take my word for it. You can ask the community at any time. We'll see you there. I love I love that you bring that up. Just earlier today, I was on a call with a community member and we were talking about um, how challenging that, that exact problem is like in marketing operations, uh, we are frequently asked, I think at least in the B2B SaaS space, right? Like how do you do an onboarding nurture? How do you do an activation of some kind for all these users? How do you do like feature use case usage based sort of marketing activities? And the answer is like, it's really hard to do. Like, even understanding whether or not a feature is currently in use, like a lot of a lot of folks that haven't ever had a chance to talk to a product team or an, a developer, uh, they don't realize that like that that isn't inherently built into the code base to just send that stuff around, right? Like, yeah. you know, the, the the engineers are not sitting there going, "Well, the marketer is going to want to know when a user does this, so I'm going to yeah. make sure I write a piece of code." Like, that's not what they're doing. They're there to build really good product. You know, and it, one of the reasons why I love the idea of pairing up, you know, marketing ops and marketers with with uh, product teams is to try to get to those questions a little sooner, 
rather than later, but that's fundamentally, it's really hard to do. And so, you know, I love that you're tackling it with, with like sort of a layer of, uh, of technology that can like at least facilitate that. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and this is the exact kind of use case that we're trying to, trying to go for because we see it so frequently. Um, one of the other things I think that, uh, I just thought of as, as you were talking about kind of this interplay between the product side and what the engineer is instrumenting and what the marketer is able to, to use in terms of the data is also just that I, I think some of the lines that we see, at least, you know, from the conversations that we have between uh, marketing, marketing ops and growth teams, which often have engineers and PMs, those start to blur because who really owns an onboarding flow really? You know, is it is it the PM, the growth PM who's kind of uh, sending in-app notifications um, or is it, you know, the marketing team that's kind of creating this nurture series uh, who are really hitting the same customers with very similar messaging just through different channels? Or is it, you know, the CS team that is uh, kind of reaching out to somebody who's going through a free trial and trying to get them to, uh, you know, debug their data connection because they have trouble adding a data source or getting really value out of the product. And, And so one of the things that we see a lot is, okay, you have a marketer that's actually sending out an email and signing that as like a CS manager uh, in the byline or same thing happens with sales. Um, And and a lot of these lines start blurring even organizationally. Uh, You just have kind of one person sometimes at smaller companies that's doing, doing everything. And maybe kind of, you know, one, one takeaway that I have is I wonder if we're headed for a future where things are much more aligned organizationally around the customer journey rather than, you know, strict handoffs between different parts of the customer funnel, because um, certainly one of the things we see with as more product data becomes um, important in the B2B marketing journey is that uh, it's much more about there's, there's no linear path from or handoff between one function to the other. Uh, it's all about kind of the customer journey, which is very business specific. So I'm curious if you guys see that. In, in, um, in I, definitely that, yeah. <laughs> I definitely do. I definitely do. I think I think that there's a chance for, you know, we're seeing more of this like, um, you know, adoption of like, what do we believe the customer journey should be? Um and then how do we sort of implement that, right? And I think like one of the core challenges that I've come across is the the realization that like there isn't, <laughs> there's no like um, silver bullet that like solves all of the, the problems, right? Like we can't, there's no one answer to any of this you, thing. You, you want to repeat that? Because I want to make sure everybody <laughs> heard that. Right. There's no silver bullet. There's no silver bullet that that solves this. And George, I think for you, like it's a dangerous hole as a product owner. Like you're probably you're gonna hear from investors and and people who are using your product, they're gonna be like, Well, can you build AI to tell us what the user journey should be like? You know, and like the thing is, is 
For oh, me, don't worry, we've already gotten that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I can only surprised. imagine. Yeah. What's the, not surprised. Build in the best practice, yeah. right? Right. I think. I think my as as someone who is now a curator of like programming that is community led, right? Like I am. I'm saying like, hey, what what does everybody really want, and how can we try to bring that to the to this community? Um, I think if you can, to the best of your ability. Try to try to work alongside your current market, your customers, to figure out what it is that they what they believe their journey should be and how they want to adopt your product. But I think don't be afraid to uh, create like carve your own sort of path, right? Um, imagine like an art gallery, right? When someone puts an art gallery together, they actually want to tell a story through that journey on your sort of trip down this like one particular artist's like timeline or maybe a genre and a set of categories like that person who put that gallery together did it with intention and the turns the lefts and the rights and the decisions that you get to make are the story that they want you to experience and so i think it's like on us to also try to figure out like what do we believe the journey should be and like let's hedge our bets and try that for a little while (laughs) And then take people down that path. But to your point earlier, George, like the lines are blurred and it mm-hmm. very much depends on your business model, right? Like maybe CS people are trying to do upsells through the PLG motion. Maybe salespeople are doing it. Maybe the product people are doing it. Maybe the growth team is doing it. Mm-hmm. But all of that, no silver bullet, one. <laughs> and two, you know what? Just come up with the journey you want to take them on. Like, curate the experience that you want them to have and focus on just that and don't divert. (laughs) Yeah. You got to give it a chance. Yeah. We've been, so I think it's interesting that you asked that question, George, because it, yeah, we've been doing some thinking about, um, re rethinking our whole go to market, particularly in the marketing side approach for our business to think around it in terms of a, a marketing funnel and I have honestly I have mixed emotions about or mixed feelings about it because I think it, it on the one hand it does provide a, some amount of structure so that we're thinking at least to having common way of thinking about how we're going to market mm-hmm. and so we can measure it and all that kind of stuff. At the same time, I just don't believe that's the way that people buy. And we, we're not even in a tech space, right? I, don't, I just don't think that's the way yeah. people buy, even in B two B space, right? They when they're and I think of that for my own stuff, like when I'm when I have an opportunity to research something that I'm just maybe just curious about, I'll spend a fair amount of time doing that. And then I might not do anything more for weeks or months. And then, because I'm kind of still thinking about it. Right. And it's not this very linear thing. It's very chaotic almost. So um, I do, I think that's part of the challenge too, is it, but I think it does matter where, where it does matter is if you can put this, information in front of anybody who might interact with that customer or potential customer, regardless of where they are in the organization. I think that's where you start to have the opportunity to really build trust with those people, which then builds loyalty and, and advocacy if you get to that point. But without that, it's really easy. You know, if your customer success or customer support teams don't have visibility into what's going on marketing and sales, they can really kill a deal. Right. Um, So, or a salesperson might come in at the wrong time when there's a a product issue, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, we hear this all the time. It's, it's, you know, people, people say, what's the classic thing where they say, um, your product reflects your org structure, right? Um, yeah. And, 
or you ship your org structure. And, uh, and I think this is a case where um, the tools that we use reflect kind of the org structures that have been kind of like set up as best practice, right? There's a CS team, there's a sales team, there's a marketing team. So of course, all those teams have their own dedicated tools to manage customer communications for their part, part of the funnel. But what happens when you know, the funnel isn't quite so linear and when those lines get blurred a little bit? Well, then those tools still kind of, then, then those tools basically start overlapping and, um, and it becomes kind of a coordination challenge. We see this all the time. Um, we talk to customers all the time who are you know, large at scale companies that everyone's heard of um, and they still struggle with uh, this today. And, you know, even basic things like subscriptions and uh, making sure that you don't receive an email from another system if you've unsubscribed, um, you know, from one. Um, those things are, are kind of, are, um, are hard to, to kind of manage. Uh, which could be surprising, um, I think, at least, you know, as, as someone who doesn't come from a marketing background, um, that was surprising kind of to hear, but it just kind of shows kind of maybe the complexity of some of these challenges and also just the inherent nature and evolution of some of the things that we're seeing in the market. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really interesting, and but I can testify to the fact that there are definitely companies where multiple systems are not in sync when it comes to things like opt-outs. So definitely think that's the case. So it, so what I want to kind of go back to a little bit, you, um, when you and I first talked, you know, and you mentioned it already, right. I, I immediately was thinking about CDPs and I think around the time we talked, we actually had a guest not long before that on talking about CDPs. Cause it was something that I've been hearing about. didn't know much about. So how do you, like what's the distinction between the the kind of warehouse native solution concept and CDPs? Is it are they competing things? Are they compat like are they complementary? Like what's the what's the difference there? How do you see see those? Yeah, I mean it I think it really comes down to the source of truth distinction that I was talking about earlier. Um what CDPs do is they ingest customer data from a number of different source systems. It could be your event collector, it could be third-party tool, it could be your CRM. And then they let you do, uh, they do identity resolution, let you do segmentation on top of it, and then, you know, send it downstream usually to other tools for ad targeting, emails, etc. And, you know, I, I think the big kind of shift in the warehouse native approach is, you know, you don't need a separate data store to do all this organization and centralization and identity stitching. You actually just want your cloud data warehouse to be the place where all that happens. And then you're accepting the, the, the cloud data warehouse as truth. And, and so concretely, what that means is you're putting the onus or, or giving the control of, um, the data modeling exercise, the identity resolution, how you want to calculate certain metrics to the customer rather than being opinionated about, okay, this is what an active user is, or you know, this is exactly how you, you can choose between these two options for identity resolution. And, and because every business is the same, 
that is, is not the same rather um that means that uh you're just gonna be able to have a lot more flexibility and end up with data models metrics um identity uh that is tailored to your business uh, versus something that comes out more out of the box that you don't have much control over um that's that's kind of like maybe just from a um usability standpoint and then the other thing i would say is that kind of goes hand in hand is that cdps typically again from from our conversations take a long time to implement because you're migrating a lot of data you're doing all this crunching um in like a separate system if you can do all that calculation computation inside a cloud data warehouse that the customers are already operating then it simplifies the process to implement from sometimes months to days and you know obviously that's a huge uh difference when it comes to business results and getting up and running okay so let me i want to see if i can play this back because i think i something just hit me so i think what i'm hearing so cdp based on what i understand what you described it's sort of pulling in data and then pushing it back out or some version of it back out to these different systems that all have their own databases and data structures. Um, and maybe it's doing some calculations, but maybe those applications are doing them as well kind of for their specific needs. Is that, uh, do I have that about right for CDP? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. But and so I think what I'm hearing differently with this warehouse native is that rather than, um, sort of ingesting, pulling data in from all these different apps or, or, or solution platforms, the, the database is the database. And those, these, if you have warehouse native platforms, they're basically just apps that are accessing um, and maybe sending some data back, but it's based on probably transactional level kind of stuff as opposed to computational kinds of things. Is that the way, am I understanding that right? Um, yeah, I, I would say the, the, the CDP is requiring kind of, it's trying to be the source of truth and, and in the absence of a cloud data warehouse, you basically have to do everything that a cloud data warehouse does and then more. And okay. whereas, uh, in a warehouse native approach is you, you're, you're saying, okay, you have a data warehouse, so I'm not going to do all the backend processing. I'm not going to do all the computation, the ingestion and everything I would have to do as a CDP. Um, I'll just do kind of the, almost the UI layer or the orchestration layer. So the segmentation, the business logic and, and the actual activation. And so it's kind of decoupling the, the database part from the, the interaction and the UI and the application side. Right. CDP kind of combines the two in one because in a world where you didn't have, you know, cloud data warehouses, you had to do both. Yeah. Well, and so the reason I was trying to clarify is where my head went to, because as I've already like shared, right, I'm old enough to remember back when it was like yeah. mainframes and terminals and client server was a thing. Like, this sounds very much like that. I mean, it's, that's kind of was, it's not quite the same, uh, but certainly, definitely not mainframe terminal, but it, like client server, I, that concept of where you're sort of splitting some of the, the, um, processing efforts right between different sides of 
the, the it, it sounds something like that, which, so it's interesting to me to see it kind of the evolution has been to go to all these sort of um, specific applications with their own databases and their purposes to one that's more like kind of going back to old school with newer technology to support the ability to distribute the, the data and all that. So um, that's, to me, that's interesting, right? Like, I think I finally, that helped me click on how to differentiate this from things like CDPs. So tell me if I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm totally off here. Yeah, no, no, I think, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you, you need, um, you need one database at the, at the end of the day. Right. And, and your customer data should be stored in, in one place. You don't need multiple copies of it. If you can have everything point to that single copy and, um, you know, in a world where you have a cloud data warehouse, that is your copy of the data. Uh, you don't need a CDP plus another tool, plus another tool that all have separate copies of your data. Um, and, uh, and, and I think, you know, that's why, you know, you're starting to see a lot of companies move from, you know, their CDPs over to kind of uh, adopting cloud data warehouses. Makes a ton of sense. I'm just like, I, I don't know, Hartman, you might have one more question and, and so we could go well, with yours. My, I'm, I'm already, I'm already realizing we, like we could have, we, we may need to follow up on this one. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, my my question is is like you know do you feel who's responsible for this like transformation around how to think about the activation of this data and like is it is it a collective responsibility like like you know people just need to get in a room and talk <laughs> and like <laughs> and like episodes like this can help educate them on yeah. this is why we need to talk about it or is it IT like I don't Who's owning this? Is it, is it a business action? operations? Is yeah. It, yeah. No, I think that's actually a really, really good question. So I'm curious to hear what you're seeing out there, George. Yeah. I Like the short answer is where we think about this question a lot because um, in our go-to-market, it, it obviously kind of ha- has a big impact on, on where, you know, who we go after and who we talk to um, and how we position ourselves. I think one thing that uh, what I'll say is uh, and I don't think I have like a silver bullet answer here either, but I, you know, I can share some things that we observe. Um, one is that I think, uh, you know, obviously the adoption of cloud, cloud data warehouses makes it easier for companies earlier uh, to get their data into a better shape. So what I mean by that is uh, if you would talk to me two years ago, right, the average series B company would, probably not have their data in a good place. Like um, they might not even have a data team. Whereas today, the average series A company that we talk to has a cloud data warehouse and it has at least one person who's managing it. So just kind of the shift of wow. data maturity. That's um, crazy. You know, That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what that means is that, you know, um, the people who really benefit from this are the downstream stakeholders. So uh, marketing teams go to market teams that consume data. I think they're just going to have access to higher quality data faster in the life cycle. So you're going to start to see earlier stage startups have more sophisticated life cycle and marketing programs. I think that's, that's the direction that we're headed. And that reflects a need 
generally in the market where companies are collecting more and more product data earlier and earlier in their life cycles and doing more personalization and targeting and workflows based on that product data. Um, I think on the other hand, when we talk to marketers, um, you know, we also kind of see a similar type of convergence where, um, you know, I think there's this stereotype, uh, at least, um, and I think it's kind of wrongly placed that, you know, marketers are not technical or data savvy. I think it's actually the opposite. Um, I think marketers are actually very data savvy and we start to see marketers are actually quite technical, very proficient, able to speak about um, technical concepts and understand the way that their data is structured and interface very directly with their data team and say, no, this is, I need the data in this format. Um, I need you to get me this data point a certain way, talk to their product teams, talk to engineers and be able to ask for what they need in a very specific way. That wasn't the case, you know, three, five years ago when I was working, you know, at Lyft. And, and I think what that means is there's just a much tighter collaboration between those teams. And I think it means that they're able to get what they need faster. I think there's just better dialogue and better collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are two things I see from my kind of like selfish standpoint. I hope that this trend accelerates because it'll make our job a lot easier in terms of educating the respective people, um, getting data people to appreciate the go-to-market challenges and the, and the business use cases, but also getting kind of the, the go-to-market teams to appreciate the technology considerations. Um, that's a lot of where we sit and trying to kind of pull those two teams together and get them to talk to each other. Yeah. I really so like that, um, George, and I appreciate your answer. Um, hopefully people tune into this episode and we can accelerate that, that learning yeah. as well uh, with you. So thank you. Well, I, th- you, I think what was really, really caught my attention when we first started talking about this was just, I think in the back of my mind, and I probably said it out loud in public too a few times, like it feels like there's been, it, it, even with all the volume of new marketing revenue technology companies out there, they seem to be really niche. There's not really been something that seemed really sort of a, 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 a I hate to use this paradigm shift, but a, a, like a significant change in direction um, like this. So that, um, it's, in, it's really interesting and I, I, I'm going to be really curious to see how it plays out. So George, thanks for joining us. Anything, anything last minute and truly like I have a whole set of new questions that weren't even like, we didn't get to everything we had planned on even here. So um, anything like, last bit of nuggets you want to share with our listeners before we, 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 we sign off here. Um, I, you know, I think the, the, the one thing that I, I'll say that I learned is, uh, or, or, you know, learned from working with our customers is that, um, almost universally you tend to kind of underestimate the benefits of, um, being able to use, better data to run the same campaigns. It's like, you know, we talk to people that say, okay, yeah, like we have data that we're not using, product data that we're not using, but we haven't really prioritized improving this onboarding flow because, you know, we've got like 50 other things that we're working on. And I, and I say, okay, well, you know, we can 
run a really like lightweight, simple POC. It'll take like a couple hours to get started. And then, you know, at that point, if you can tell, if you see no results or uh, then no harm, no foul, right? But why not give it a try? And inevitably, you know, I think people underestimate, and, and it's not because we have a magical tool or anything, right? It's just because people already have data that they're not leveraging. And it's just the impact of personalizing the same emails with just a little bit more or um, being able to do a little bit of more routing logic to send a specific segment of users different messages or messages that they wouldn't have received before um, will drive conversion at like a very critical step of their activation funnel. And I think, especially for founders and, and people that haven't run a lot of these programs before, your intuition is that, hey, it might not matter that much in the beginning, but you know, uh, it turns out that in general, people underestimate the impact that it could have. So um, yeah. I would encourage people to give it a shot. No, I think, I mean, that's what, something that I've been preaching for a while is focused not on like these big, easy to measure conversion things, but looking at small micro conversions through a customer's journey and, and really focusing on improving those incrementally. And they have a multiplier effect, right? It can really make a difference. So fascinating stuff. George, thanks for thanks for joining us today. Um, if folks want to keep up with you, connect with you, or learn more about Supergrain, what's the best way for them to do that? You can go to supergrain.com, which is our website. Uh, also, feel free to shoot me a note at george at supergrain.com. Um, always uh, excited to have conversations like this, chat marketing, uh, chat data. So um, don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you. Yeah, great. George, it's been a pleasure. I My mind is really now, Mike. Thank you, as always. Yeah, thank we'll you, get, George. We'll get Naomi on next time as well, hopefully. And to all you out there listening and uh, continuing to support us, we thank you and continue to give us your feedback and support and ideas and suggestions for topics and or guests. So until next time, we'll talk to you later. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.